Our lectionary text for today is out of Romans chapter 8. You heard it read earlier. And until yesterday, I had a different title for this homily. And in a commentary that I was uh, reading yesterday, they talked about this passage being a rallying cry of resistance. I was like, oh, that's the title for sure. So uh, today we're going to be talking about what it means in challenging, hard times uh, to allow our lives to be a rallying cry of resistance, to allow the presence of God through us to be a rallying cry of resistance. And so the first question for you just to think amongst yourselves, reflect upon amongst yourselves, but not to talk amongst yourselves, is when was the last time you found yourself speechless? How did you handle being at a loss for words? There are lots of different things that can cause us to be speechless. Someone shares some unexpected news with us and it might feel like your world has all of a sudden turned upside down or perhaps it's their world that has turned upside down and you're struggling to know how to come alongside and support them. What would be meaningful? How, what is their language of love and care that they would be able to receive uh, whatever it is you are hoping to offer them in that moment. There are lots of different times we find ourselves uh, speechless. When I was in high school, I thought I was discerning a call into vocational ministry. So far, that's still relatively working out. Uh, and I really probably did not know what ministry meant. Like I probably, I don't think I envisioned myself as like a TV preacher, but I probably did envision myself like, oh yeah, you know, like we're going to buy the Frank Irwin Center and turn that into my church someday or whatever, you know. Like I just had a lot of whatever, like that bigger and better is greater and more successful and that's meaningful and that's the metric that would show that this is a meaningful thing and I remember being at youth camp in the summer, it was July, and um, I had really been resisting this strong sense that I had that um, vocational ministry was going to be my future path. And I went forward and shared with my youth minister, Baptists, and so Baptists have a lot of, you're gonna come forward and respond to what is happening. And so I walked down the aisle and came forward and told my youth minister that I was feeling a call into vocational ministry. Uh, and I don't know what I expected, probably like a high five, that's awesome, you're gonna be great, I wanna mentor you and help you be a great minister. And I'm sure he did do all of those things and say those kinds of things. Um, but what I remember, and it was one of those moments for me that like, I felt for a moment very speechless, is he said, cool, let me pray with you. And he prayed over me and then he said, now, I want you to go over to the side, like we were meeting inside of an outside tabernacle, so everything was kind of outside, but outside in that case means where there's at least not a roof over your head, even though there are no walls anywhere. Like, so I want you to go over there because there's someone from our youth group. I know you don't know them very well, but the person who is like their mother and has raised them uh, for like the last seven years, um, he just found out that she has cancer and he's a mess. You feel called to ministry, go talk to them. I'm in 10th grade, come on, you know? Like, it's like, I, I don't have any real relation. Like, I'd probably said hi to this person. I was in a youth group that was fairly large. Um, I'd probably said hi to this person once or twice 
never had any kind of conversation, never had a conversation like this before in my life. And so I was terrified. I'm sure I was speechless and probably only because I do have deeply ingrained in me a people pleaserness. Like that's probably the only reason I didn't resist or just say like, no, like, you know, forget that. I, I guess I'm wrong. I'm not called into ministry after all, if that's what it takes. If that's what that means, then no. Um, so I just sort of kind of like stumbled forward and it felt kind of like an out of body experience, candidly, because I think I was just so nervous and anxious about like, I don't know what I'm doing. This feels really heavy and deep and I have no clue what to say. And I can still tell you that I have no clue what I said in that time. Um, I do hope and believe, uh, we cried a little bit. I was, I was in my deep Enneagram two heart space. So we cried a little bit together and had a good hug at some point. And I do think at least in terms of feeling companioned well in that moment, that person felt companioned well. But I have no idea what words were exchanged between us. In our text, which continues the passage that we looked at last week, uh, this is a bit of what we sort of see God doing. Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. We are caught in a place of not knowing how to pray. We, we, we feel something caught in our throat. We, we feel a sense of compassion for someone who is suffering or outrage for the people who are part of the oppression. We, we feel bad for the ways that we have allowed uh, our own self-centeredness to twist us in the way that has harmed those around us or we see that happening to somebody else and wish we knew how to intervene, but we just don't know how to pray. And our text lets us know that the Spirit of God is interceding, interceding with groanings. I loved uh, the song that Jess had us sing earlier. We we're just going, oh, 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 it's a long way down. We're just kind of, all of us were collectively in some sense invited by that song to, to groan and moan together, to feel the isolation, the loneliness, the sadness, the alienation that we all find ourselves in. And Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, says, Spirit is doing that with us too. Verse 27, and God who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Like saints is just a fancy word for Paul that is talking about anyone who has opened their life to the love of God is allowing by faith their life to be shaped by God's love. Then you are entering into this movement of God. You are now part of this family of God that is doing God's work in the world. And so you are the saints and the spirit is interceding with groanings, which is interesting, right? Not words. It's not as if spirit's like, oh, don't worry. I know you're a silly human, but I've got like all the right words and language. Spirit's just like, no, let me get down there right there with you in the middle of your pain and your suffering in the middle of this 
indignation towards the injustice that continues to happen. And let me groan and moan with you. And somehow God is able to listen to this chorus of groaning and moaning that is happening. And God understands then, okay, here, here's what I need to do to respond to this cry for resistance. Particularly when I used to be a college minister, I would have a lot of parents that would reach out to me, usually when their parents were in, or their parents, when their college students were in some form of deconstruction, decolonization, and the parents were freaking out and getting really nervous about the questions their kids were asking them and the things they're saying at Thanksgiving or Christmas when they're home. And so they'd be reaching out to me as a, a, a Baptist chaplain at this Baptist university, sort of like, hey, you know my kid, like, you know, go do your thing. Uh, and one of the things I would encourage them to think through is that perhaps the very resistance, the very questions that their uh, young adult is asking and offering is God through them, that they are perhaps being sent of agents of renewal and even resistance to the parts of the body of Christ where we might be seeing decay or corruption or complacency and, and that this might not always be just some sort of late stage adolescent rebellion, but could in fact be them walking in step with God's spirit, perhaps if we all just would have ears to hear. Speaking of another kind of longing and moaning, Reverend Linda Noonan uh, says this, the Appalachian Mountains were once connected to what are now the Scottish Highlands. In the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, through the central Pangaean Mountains during the Carboniferous, Permian, and Triassic periods. Do our continents long in the memory of past connection? Do the Appalachian Mountains ache for Africa? Are wildfires raging in anguish, spilling tears of carbon and ash, and the charred remains of boreal forests that become part of our own molecular structure? A reminder that no border, no checkpoint, no wall can truly separate us. A few years ago, uh, I went to an art display show that was all about uh, interrogating superheroes and what superheroes mean for us and what we can learn from them. And one of the pieces of work uh, that I still go back to and ponder and consider is from Jason Bard Yarmosky. And he took a picture with uh, his grandmother and with other family members' consent. And part of the reason it was a family decision is she was suffering with Alzheimer's. And so he wanted to make sure as much as possible he had her consent and that other family members felt good about uh, this. And he put her in a Wonder Woman outfit because he says, and I'm gonna just read the quote from here. Since the beginning of time, we continue to seek comfort in a life we have little control over. Our culture loves superheroes, godlike figures that we tend to put on pedestals. We celebrate these iconic symbols impervious to harm. What we often overlook is another important dimension to their character, their vulnerability, a quality that makes us truly human. My grandmother was a wonder woman to me. Her heroic battle with Alzheimer's disease left her vulnerable. 
In my work wintered fields, I wanted to contrast her age and predicament with this symbolic costume to show both the heroism and vulnerability of the human condition. He sees his grandmother as a superhero. I'm sure for lots of things in connection before Alzheimer's began to set in, but also because of how she faced and navigated Alzheimer's. And he says, though I know we would not normally tend to think of someone uh, with this kind of condition as being heroic or a superhero, she's every bit of Wonder Woman to me. It's in her vulnerability that this power is unlocked. And this seems to be what the Spirit of God is doing and what Paul is trying to point us to in Romans, that our own vulnerability is not something that we have to run away from or feel shame for, and that even God meets us in that place. Uh, Sylvia Kismet and Brian Walsh say it like this, Paul takes a step further. Not only does the spirit groan in the travails of childbirth with us, I love that image, that, that the spirit is either this midwife kind of coaching us on through this intense pain and suffering, or perhaps uh, is giving birth right alongside us saying, I know this hurts, I know this is challenging, but we are gonna get through this together. There's going to be new life on the other side. Um, back to the quote, those groans are sighs too deep for words. This is quite stunning. You see the Holy Spirit cannot take our inarticulate prayers and translate them into words for God because the Holy Spirit is just as much at a loss for words as we are. God knows those deepest longings. God knows what we wait for. God shares those longings and God is waiting for the same thing we are. If you find yourself at a loss for words, we can know that spirit groans with us for justice and renewal. Spirit is that midwife companioning us through the travails and troubles and challenges we find. We move on to Romans 8 verse 28, a verse that if you have grown up in the Christian faith, you're probably not unfamiliar with. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. Uh, this verse is translated in several ways. One translator would say all things work together for good for those who love God. There, sort of the subject seems to be all things, and perhaps there's just some sort of natural order that works out that everything will eventually work for good, even if not all parts of it are good. Another translation is that God makes all things work together for good so that all things don't necessarily naturally tend to become good, but that God is somehow there to correct it and make sure that it ends up doing so. Another is that in all things, God works for good. So it is indeed God who is working for good in all things, but not all things presumably in this translation turn out well, just, we just know that God is working for good, but don't necessarily have the assurance that it is going to be so. Uh, and a translation um, I came across this week uh, in one of the commentaries was one I had not considered before. Um, we know that in all things, God works for good with those who love God. There is... 
the sense in this passage that we may be at a loss for words, but that we can rest assured that there are people who are being shaped by the love of God going throughout the world, throughout the cosmos, who are responding and partnering with that, and that God is working with those people to bring about good in the world. And perhaps when we feel ready, we might even be able to join and to go from feeling a space of, I, I don't have any words, but, but what might be the next step of faith I can take? What might be some actions I can do to join in this resistance? I want to be a part of this movement of people who are being shaped by the love of God. In this, God is not responding to our pain, suffering, injustices, and disillusionments with a don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. This is not like sort of God's just kind of like haphazard, uh, just let me put some sparkles on whatever your troubles might be today. Instead, God is finding us perhaps in a world that continually tries to act as if things like death and injustice and empire are not real or that the best we can do is to try to get as high up within the system as we can rather than to reform it or to tear it down and build something better. And God has said, I groan with you for this and I want to be a part of birthing something new in the world. I heard recently of the machete cut of Barbie and Barbenheimer, which is that if you go, if you participated with uh, the Barbie and then Oppenheimer screenings, I didn't see them both of the same day, but within the same week, that in theory, what you should do is you should start off watching Barbie. And if you've even seen a trailer, you know that there's a part where Barbie says, do you ever think about dying? And then in that moment, you need to leave the theater and go see Oppenheimer, all three hours of it, and let that be sort of your meditation on death and on hubris and on ways that indigenous people were uh, totally oppressed through different things. All that is happening there. You can let that happen. And then Oppenheimer is done, and then you can come back and try to catch the film right after that. And then know that everything that Barbie is doing from there on has kind of been her sort of Oppenheimer-like meditation. Uh, <laughs> And I have not done that yet, but I can guarantee you at some point I will. Uh, and I think part of what made this moment in our culture for us uh, was that these films initially, when we didn't know much about Barbie, seemingly seemed to be very opposite kind of films, right? One is this film that is going to talk about, uh, you know, how we... Be got atomic power and all the compromises and challenges that went along with that and sort of this moral predicament and quandary of what did we do and how, how dirty are all of our hands uh, in, in this. And the other is Barbie world, right? And so we had what seemed like this very plastic, very like pink and bright thing. But instead, if you've seen the films, you know that a lot of what they are pondering seems to be very similar in nature, there is perhaps maybe initially this thought that the world might be able to be as shiny and plastic as we would like it to be, but that instead the real world is 
far more corrupt and complicit. And what does it look like to be in conversation with that and to be trying to upend and subvert that? There are these deep questions that we are left with. And I think Romans 8.28 gives us that as well. So if you're feeling powerless, we can know that God partners with those shaped by radical love to work for repair and for restoration. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we get the Shema, which is for the Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear, which is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Romans 8.28 talks about those who love God, and Paul almost certainly has this verse that was part of the practice of prayer that Jewish people then and now would pray to help form and shape their faith, that they are saying, we want to be open to your love, God. We want to be a part of people who were shaped by your love, that our, our decisions, our family life, our work life, our creative life, that everything about us is being in harmony with your love, that our heart, our soul, our very embodied beings, our might, might be a part of your love. And so I think not that this verse, when it says, for those who love God, like I've heard people who say that kind of be like, so it doesn't mean those people over there, because they're the wrong belief system. Their doctrines are wrong. They're out of order. Uh, they're participating in too much wickedness or evil, um, at least how they would culturally define it. it. It usually tends to mean only when people talk about it in that way, the people that love God the way that I love God. And I think rather... Paul would have understood this to say, no, 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 this is a prayer that people get to pray and it allows them where they are in their context, in their journey, to be shaped by, to be in dance with the love of God, to respond to it, to live in it according to how they are understanding love is calling them forward. If you're feeling unsupported, we are invited to be co-conspirators with Jesus and God's global family. Verse 29, for those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of God's son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Also, if I were in college, this would have been a verse that we would have probably spent like, I don't know, three semesters unpacking, like foreknew, predestined. How much are you into determinism? And while those are maybe interesting questions for me, the uh, Will Ferrell film, uh, Stranger Than Fiction, is the one that worked it all out for me. Uh, and I'm not kidding, like I've, I've written a paper that I submitted for seminary to such, a, to such ends. Uh, I don't think that's primarily what Paul is getting at here. I think that is for us to insert sort of a very individualistic, private kind of like, hey, how's my salvation working out? And like, am I like on the God's team? And maybe the reason you keep messing up is because you're not on God's team. And that's not at all how Paul is using this verse. That's not at all the thrust that's happening. He's saying, hey, if you're really struggling, faith community in Rome, if you're really struggling under suffering and injustice and perhaps even persecution that is happening, I, I want you to know if we could sort of peek into this God who is mystery, who somehow weaves this web that is history and it is our future and it is the present and somehow is connected to all things in ways that are blowing our minds. And we could know that it, if, if we are saying yes to this movement of God's love, 
we can have some sense that, that, that we are God's chosen. And this is, again, Paul in a very Jewish sense saying, because God has a chosen people and he understands through Jesus that this chosen people is God's global family, that, that it transcends lines denominationally, doctrinally, that it transcends lines of ethnicity and culture and geographically, that God has a dream for a global family and that God is choosing to work through that family. And if you are saying yes to being a part of that family, you can know that God has always known you, always loved you, has always dreamed of this family and is so glad that you're a part of being shaped by God's love in this way. N.T. Wright says, as true image bearers, they might reflect the same image into the world, bringing to creation the healing, freedom, and life for which it longs. To be conformed to the image of God or of God's Son is a dynamic, not a static concept. It's ongoing. Reflecting God into the world is a matter of costly vocation. Verse 31 what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God who did not withhold God's own son, but God gave him up for all of us. How will God not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. But Paul's not using this to give people who are in power the ability to oppress and hurt those who are marginalized and on the sidelines. He is saying to a marginalized and oppressed group, God is for you too. It would have been easy for them to see how God was for the people empowered and in the pantheon and the empire, but to people who are on the outside of empire, who are in the rotting carcass of empire, at the bottom of it, he is saying to them, God is for you too. You can know that. You can trust that. You can be shaped by that. You can know that no matter what opposition comes against you, God is still working in and among you and through you. I was recently uh, with my boyfriend watching the film Theater Camp. And at one point in the film, he just kind of with glee, he leans over to me and says, my inner theater kid feels so seen right now. And like, just like the absolute joy on his face um, when he said that to me. And it reminds me to some degree, I think of what Paul is alluding to here, that God has this family that we are all invited to be in and we can bring our idiosyncrasies, we can bring our weirdness, we can bring the parts of us that don't seem to fit in well and it can be a family that like the film theater camp isn't where you find shame for that or are told to conform but instead where the very thing that makes you unique can be the thing that bears God's image in beautiful ways not only for one another for us to see the different ways we can image Christ to one another but also into a larger world that is caught up with empire so how can we continue to bear witness as this expansive, global, inclusive family of the divine? A family that continues to welcome newness, subversion, and growth. I realized as I was putting this sermon together that I didn't have any like real clear application points. And that's something that I struggle with anyways when I preach. Um, and so I was about to start making some, 
But then fortunately, another commentary left me off the hook because they pointed this out, that in Romans 8, there are no imperatives. There is really nothing for us to do. Paul is laying out, here is everything that God has done. Can you let that wash over you in this moment? Can you marinate in that? Can you soak that up? Can you allow that to open up your heart to dream of forgiveness, of liberation, of new life, of new ways of showing solidarity with one another, of new practices that can form and shape us to be better lovers of God and of one another and of creation. Can we let God's love do that? I want to close our time looking at three of the last verses of Romans 8 and just sort of reading them slowly and intentionally because I think, though they can sound very triumphalistic, Again, Paul is not here just throwing some things out there and say like, oh yeah, God is better than anything as he's like in some penthouse, um, just sort of like, isn't life great? Most of the things that Paul is talking about are things that he has actually suffered through. And so he is bearing witness to the reality that God's love can find us even in the most challenging times. So verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.